0: everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we're going to be thinking and talking with Haley Walters who is an amazingly inspiring vet nurse. She's had a career that's taken her from China to Paris um, and to Edinburgh and back again and we're really excited to be chatting to her and also in our clinical section today we're going to be talking about animal welfare within the clinic and the role of pain scoring and how we can improve that. So as always my name is Scott, I'm one of the founders of VTX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine and as always I'm joined with my best friend Karen who is our podcast producer and as we say is here to keep us all on track, particularly me. Hi. Hello, Karen. Yes. How are you? Fine, you. Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing well. Oh good. <laughs> okay. So, um, so hi Haley. We're really honestly truly excited to have you here today. I have to um introduce you in the way that my husband would, um, which is um Dame Haley Walter's <laughs> The Animal's Princess. So <laughs> And it was really, do you know that comes up every time you phone him, that's what comes up in his phone. <laughs> so, oh, bless him. Um, so just for, for everyone out there, the reason that that is funny but slightly true is <laughs> because um, Haley was awarded an MBE for her uh, work as a veterinary nurse, and that's certainly one of the things that we want to talk about uh, today. So I don't know if you want to just start by telling us a little bit about your career, maybe where it all started and how we've ended up where we are today
1: yes um thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast i'm really excited oh, and really flattered good. so thank you everybody um yeah i started veterinary nursing back in 1996 oh, wow. and I- <laughs> I know I qualified in 1999 and I was the last of the little green book veterinary nurses for those of you out there that um, can remember the little green book. Um, After about 10 years in mixed animal practice and a lovely practice in Derbyshire in Buxton, um, I wanted to go a bit further afield and I had recently split up with my long term boyfriend and I thought a new haircut won't do it and I'm off to China. (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd seen a (laughs) tiny little advert in the Vet Nursing Times, the size of a postage stamp, and it said vet nurse volunteers needed um, to work with um, newly rescued bears in China. And so this was an amazing charity called Animals Asia. And a few weeks later, rabies vaccinated, and with absolutely zero knowledge about China or bears, um, I flew off to Chengdu, um, where I volunteered for three months in the amazing um, sanctuary there that's specifically built for bears, rescued from the um, bile farming industry, wow. which is an industry that extracts bile from the gallbladders of bears. And this, um, this bile is then used in traditional medicine. And I absolutely adored that job. And um, when I went back to my practice in Bucks. And they very kindly kept my job for me. It was the second time they'd done it. Um, I knew that my heart was now in China and working in animal welfare and rescue. And so I went back supposedly for one year as a paid veterinary nurse. But I ended up staying for over three years and I loved that job. And then after that job, um, I actually moved to France, moved to Paris and, and I taught English in Paris for a year. Um, but I really missed working with animals so much but I now had teaching experience and a job was advertised at the University of Edinburgh um, and they were looking for um, a welfare and anesthesia veterinary nurse and this was a position where you'd be based p- um, partly in the um, small animal teaching hospital that's um, specifically built to teach um, the veterinary students there um, but also involved um, traveling to um, developing countries and teaching in the vet schools about animal welfare and clinical skills and behavior and pain recognition and so I spent um, six or seven years doing that Um, and again thoroughly thoroughly loved that job. Um, Saw some sad sights but also met some amazing people and hopefully um, influenced some changes within those vet schools and, and the way they teach
0: in them. I, I do you know this? Uh, this is why I love these conversations, Karen, as well, because I think it. You know, we just are like, oh, people do really amazing things. So, yeah. um, isn't it cool? So, I I want to ask first of all, how is your Chinese? Um,
1: not good. I'd say buhao, not good, <laughs> no good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and so I think this is so interesting. Um, the the I mean, I've been to China once, but done nothing that you've done. I was doing some teaching there. And for me, what I was struck by was it that culturally it's so different you know the 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 way things are in in China is so different from what you, we're used to here how How does a vet nurse from the United Kingdom working in mixed animal practice and you know in like literally james Harriet how do you trans <laughs> how, how does how do you then fit into that completely different? world where these are not domestic animals you know they're being used for this other purpose like how do you even do that how do you make that transition
1: it was a very very steep learning curve and obviously the culture shock as well um because i'd never been to asia let alone china um i worked with really good people and the beauty of going to the sanctuary was and and the meaning of sanctuary is that it is just for the animals it is not for the public there's no human benefit um when you go there it is literally just about the bears. And I found that really reassuring that I had come to a project that was solely focused on on making the life as wonderful as possible for these bears. And I think because I was cocooned in this bear bubble for three months, um, and just had little weekend jaunts into the city. Um, I felt very comfortable there. Um, and veterinary nursing skills, just like veterinary surgeon skills, they are all transferable. So the way mm. um, that you do surgery or anesthesia um, is very, very similar. Um, obviously you aren't able to handle the bears, but there's there's ways and means around that. And we were, we were working alongside really experienced um, Chinese bear workers who um, were great at manoeuvring bears where they needed to be Um, and just a a really great team of of vets and and other nurses who had lots of experience and were so keen to pass on that experience so that we could improve in in our skills of working with bears.
0: And were you, so these, were you there mainly to deal with these bears' health problems? So were you working? Yes. Right, so they they literally were, I suppose you were working in a type of of traditional veterinary clinic but just with bears instead and no owners it was exactly
1: exactly (laughs) like that we lived in um in the bear hospital and we lived above the bear hospital and below us was the bear operating theater so it's all the same everything is just so much bigger Mm -hmm. so a massive operating table large animal anesthetic machine um the bears would be brought to the hospital and instead of um kennels we had bear rooms which the bear would be in inside a transport cage and then when it needed to be anesthetized you would go in with your little (laughs) little cup of honey or strawberry sauce and get the bear focused on that and then the vet would um, walk in very quietly and with a a long jab stick with um, a syringe on the end jab the bear into the shoulder and then once you were extremely confident that the bear was anesthetized um, we would pull it out the cage put it on massive scales to weigh it haul it onto the table it was so slick the operation was so slick and then place it on the table and then that's when the vets and nurses would then do their job newly arrived bears all had full health checks to, to see what condition they were in and the conditions they were in were often utterly heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and how they'd survived as long as they had was unbelievable and then once the bears were rehabilitated into the beautiful semi-natural enclosures within the sanctuary um, they would then have three yearly health checks so that we could keep an eye on um, we would take bloods and look at their livers because they were very prone to um, liver tumors Um, and so everything that you can do with cats and dogs you you also do to bears but you just do it from a distance but I was <laughs>
0: laughing because you were saying that you were talking about the, your little green book which I presume was part of the kind of um <laughs> nurse qualification you know at that point I would just like to say Hayley in, in 1996 Karen and I were still in second year at high school so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so old <laughs> but, I would, but it made me think like you know you said about transferable skills and I think that's really an interesting discussion generally for vets and nurses you know there's a lot of this discussion about well what else can we do apart from this you know working in you know small animal practice um but I I, I can't I, I was struggling to think what skills in that little green book are you going to like try <laughs> like there's not a there's not a bear module in vet nurse
1: <laughs> no there isn't and do you know what the most difficult thing in that little green book um mm. was I had to have observed a normal kittening <laughs> Now, I don't think anyone, any vet nurse, has ever observed yeah. a normal kittening. We'd never be called in to see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was certain. Oh, there were so many things. Like I remember a new anaesthetic machine arriving, and we had we had to build it. Um, and I was like, yeah, don't remember getting any training on this. Uh, so many things like how to how to worm bears with drontal wormers. How you actually get those disgusting tasting tablets into almost 200 bears where they're not fighting because each of them wants the delicious treat. It's wrapped up in which was actually marshmallow we would stuff them into marshmallows oh, <laughs> you have to make sure <laughs> that you've weighed all the bears first and that you know and um, which bear is identified so you're giving the right amount of pre-stuffed marshmallows to the right bear and you do it really quickly and all at the same time so fights don't break out wow. again it was just a very slick operation that's so cute It <laughs> just makes me like oh god <laughs> they're easy species to fall in love with um, and your heart really does melt when they first arrive from the farms they're so mistrusting and and so broken and some of them have have just given up, and others ha- um, have still got that fighting spirit. They're like, You cannot hurt me anymore. And then, just after just a few days, it's so humbling. We do nothing but give them delicious food, free access to water, we give them bedding. Um, and it just takes a few days before you see what the bear workers used to call their friendly eyes. And instead of roaring and swiping when you came into their room, they would be sitting up, and some of them would squeak with excitement, wondering, What are they bringing me now? What are they bringing me? Oh, oh it, was, it was wonderful. <laughs> (laughs) and utterly humbling and it would make you cry just thinking you have been abused we would call their cages um that they spent their entire lives in um we would say they they were their cradles and their coffins they never got out of them um and so to start trusting people so quickly was was just wonderful and yeah very humbling because humans are generally horrid rubbish (laughs) um and these these bears were utterly Mm. trusting
0: that rings true in veterinary medicine generally because actually the animals are the innocent party always like they're never none of it's the animal's fault as difficult as our job is none of it is ever the animal's fault do you know what i mean like
1: yeah i do and what i find really upsetting in practice is those When we take those dogs cats are in boxes but when we take those dogs off their owners and they trot away with us and Mm. they sit still whilst we place iv lines or take blood there's nothing in it for them nothing about what we're Mm. doing is familiar and we expect them and we ask them to sit still and they do it and Mm. it breaks my heart sometimes to think you trust us so much and we're hurting you we're hurting you to help you um and I just find that just so wonderful, especially about dogs, because mm-hmm. they just they want to be with people. And we do exploit that a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, it's so true. Um, so then uh, this amazing experience in China. So why? I mean, why? Why leave? Why are you not still there? Why did that have to come to an end? Um, th-
1: three years is quite a long time in China and I'm very close to my family. Yeah. Um, I was ready to do something else. And um. <laughs> So professional. I'd met a French man in China. Oh, I knew. So, so do you know? <laughs> so do you
0: know? Andy was like, if she doesn't mention the French man, you have to bring it up. <laughs>
1: French man in China we were together there for three years um and he he left um and then eventually I left and we stayed together we did long distance and then he said would you like to move to Paris with me and you were going to
0: do the accent there but it went wrong
1: because I, I, <laughs> I can't do a French accent <laughs> Stop yourself. I did in the nick of time <laughs> I yeah I moved to Paris I packed up everything into my car and and drove to Paris and lived in a little um, apartment we don't say flats in Paris it's apartments apartments and i <laughs> got a job in a in a school teaching English and I'd never taught English before in my life um, and I really really enjoyed it I, it was adults so I really enjoyed teaching um, and obviously it's a subject I'm really good at English <laughs> <So> <laughs> I speak it quite well um, but after a few months I, I found myself one day following a cat down the road just to touch it because i had no pets there and um paris is obviously very very urban Um, there's pigeons which the french people do not like you feeding i found out Um, and i was just trying to touch this cat and i'm i grew up in derbyshire so i missed the hills and the trees and the countryside um, I'm not particularly into architecture and I certainly couldn't afford the pavement cafe culture that goes on there so yeah. I got quite I got quite sad and after a year I realised that um, I'd got a lot sadder and it was time to go back to England which I did and then quickly moved up to Scotland to work in Edinburgh. So
0: Haley and I met each other in Edinburgh, I was doing my residency in internal medicine um, and Andy, my husband, Andy of VTX obviously, he was um, a veterinary nurse at the That's where he did his training, actually. Um, And Haley was working uh, in the welfare centre, but also part of your job was to do anaesthesia. So where there was cross, you know, we worked together in that capacity. But when this job came up. Did you not think all your dreams had come true?
1: Yeah, I did. (laughs) And when I I really did, because because I'd developed all those skills in China and then all those teaching skills, I used to think, I wish there was another China where I could use all those skills again. And when I saw the job advert, it was for, um, I've been so lucky with job adverts, They wanted um, a veterinary nurse who'd worked in referral, had worked in Asia and had teaching experience. And I thought, oh my goodness, if they just added professional vodka taster, (laughs) I'd know this job was written for me. And um and so I applied and um I got the job and uh, and um I ended up working back with a wonderful vet called Heather Bacon, who I'd worked with in China, um mm. and she was now working in Edinburgh as well. So we were back together working as a, as a team in the um little plug here, the Jeanne Marchique International Centre for Animal Welfare Education. And um mm. Edinburgh, the, the vet school there is quite unique in that we have this international animal welfare education department, um, so we can uh, you know, do outreach work to other other countries who perhaps don't have um, the same uh, privileges that we have in the UK in being taught about welfare and behaviour.
0: Did the animal welfare, the the Jean-Marchie Centre, did that bring you back in in touch with the bear side of things or was there other uh, because there's other the dog meat trade am I right and different things like that yeah Yeah, okay do you want to just tell us a bit about that
1: yeah so when I was working in China I was primarily working with bears and also the illegal um, dog meat industry Um, and then when I was working in Edinburgh we were really focusing on teaching in vet schools um, and, and teaching lecturers because it's unsustainable to fly in and do a week or a fortnight's teaching to say third year vet students so it was teaching the teachers Um, training the trainers. Um, And what is a little bit sad in some countries is that they still use live animals um, to teach clinical and surgical skills to the students. And so we've seen these animals and and the way they're kept and it's it's, um, it's very sad. And these animals, so we saw a group of dogs, for example, that had Oh, every two weeks, they would have a different unnecessary procedure performed on them, like a lateral wall resection, (sighs) a vocal cordectomy, a cystotomy, um, until finally, um, they would have their legs broken and fixed. Oh, no. Oh, God. All for the students to practice. And the students, and there was no pain relief um, offered to these ducks. Oh, my God. And what was really sad is that, one, this is how the students were being taught, and this was being instilled in them. this was an acceptable way to treat animals and it gave animals um different worth in that this is what you can do with what they, they would call them the experiment animals and it was dogs rabbits and water buffalo sheep um that this is what they're worth and a pet animal is worth more which which is not not correct at all and secondly The students were extremely conflicted about using animals in this way but they were offered absolutely no alternative to practice their clinical or their surgical skills and so some of them um, really didn't want to but they felt that they had to sacrifice these animals in order to be good vets in the future. Um, And we interviewed lots of them and yeah, this is how they felt. So when we would teach in the the vet schools, and not all vet schools in developing countries use live animals, um, just some, um, we would take in our models and our mannequins and um, teach them how to how to cut how to suture how to tie ligatures how to take blood samples how to place an IV cannula um, all on models and mannequins so that they had the skills and the dexterity in place which is how we teach the UK students when it came to a live animal that was moving and breathing and bleeding
0: it is it is yeah it's it's, it's quite um distressing to kind of hear some of that I suppose but I, yeah but then you've got to have that understanding that that obviously the the world is developing and progressing in different ways and and uh, you know and I'm sure that those vet students they will have they they will they will still feel for those animals and still they um, did yeah it's not like they're yeah it it sounds very callous but it's not you know I mean I do and
1: and when we um the research was done using models and mannequins which is exactly how you'd have been taught Scott um and what students found that had used live animals they found i think it was around 88 percent of them said that the models and mannequins were equivalent or superior to using a live animal so when they were using live animals you were they were often put into groups and the whole group would watch them um, and so that's extremely nerve-wracking to cut a conscious cow they'd been lined they'd blocked with local anesthetic cut cut a cow and then suture it for the first time with all your classmates watching you and we gave a lecture once on meeting international standards and using model models and mannequins and the benefits to doing it and all the welfare reasons for for doing it for students as well as animals and um one of the female students she came down at the end and she said thank you that was really interesting she said i'm off to do my first practical on suturing a cow and um I've, I've never even held the instruments. And so we said, would you like to practice first? So she did and she, she picked up the um, the needle holders and the forceps and she she I didn't know how to hold them. They were just grafts in her hands. And she had spent 30 minutes suturing one of our pads um, and she improved drastically in those 30 minutes, and she said, okay, thank you, and I just, Mm. I'd like to think that that cow had a better experience just from 30 minutes of her, of her practicing first, you need to have those skills, that muscle memory, that dexterity, that ability to, how to hold things in place before you then challenged, um, with something as big as a live animal, and facing you.
0: What, what do you think, uh, looking back on your time doing all of this amazing work, what, what do you think, the biggest impact you've made on those students is if you had to choose one thing
1: I would think that it's about not breaking animals down to their biological values and recognizing that they are sentient beings with feelings uh fears they can experience happiness and fear and um and pleasure um and just teaching them about behavior was incredibly important because they they would never been taught about behavior so they didn't recognize that animals will let us know if they need to go out to go to the toilet um, or that cowering in the back of a cage with your head hanging low and your abdomen tucked up means that you're painful those things that we might take for granted as knowing ourselves weren't taught and if you're not taught them then um, you can't possibly know them if those people that stand in front of you and the teaching is often very didactic in those countries and there's no there's no debate or back and forth or questioning the lecturer um, if they don't teach at you then they, they don't learn it so hopefully what I taught was that that sentience really matters and, and observing an animal's body language really matters
0: I mean yes yeah, I think amazing what an amazing things to have done um I how does all of that get you a ticket to the palace
1: <laughs> I have well
0: obviously well I know why it does but just tell us a bit about that
1: I worked in Edinburgh with an absolutely uh, brilliant vet who was extremely passionate about welfare and behavior and also anesthesia and analgesia as well um called Rob Ward um he's at
0: Cambridge finishing yeah, his yeah. residency
1: in Cambridge yeah finishing his anesthesia residency I'm still in touch with him and he was uh is he's not dead a big believer in um nominating people for awards he felt they deserved to get them recognized and feel appreciated in their job and he he had actually um, nominated me for a few awards already and so when the MBE um, came through I just I couldn't believe it and it was for services to um, animal welfare and veterinary education
0: amazing Um, amazing absolutely
1: amazing and I did a a google search and I don't think any other vet nurse had ever received that award so whilst it was lovely and amazing for me to receive an MBE it was absolutely brilliant for my profession Uh, I
0: I couldn't agree more and that's that's amazing yeah
1: veterinary nurses are often um the unsung heroes I think not so much as they used to be but I've been doing this for 22 years now um and so to have that recognition was absolutely wonderful for the profession because even now even now when you go to say do car insurance and you go to that drop down menu on profession veterinary nurse sometimes still isn't there um and Mm. so to get that recognition for the profession was wonderful and yeah I went to Buckingham Palace and I met Prince Charles
0: honestly amazing (laughs) um and I think I think really that's very true and I think Karen and I would agree that our experience of recording the podcast and we have um now featured more and more um vet nurses vet nurses have um a stronger and stronger voice and also a stronger voice to say um really to empower them to do what they're trained to do this is the thing like i think vet nurses need to be vet nurses and use their skills in the way that they they you know and should be allowed to use their skills and i think that's What's so amazing about your little green book and your transferable skills <laughs> is that, you've, you I mean, my God, you've used them in the best way ever. Um, so you still work at the Jean Marchique Centre now, but you don't live in Edinburgh. Is that right? That's
1: right. So I work remotely for them now, one day a week. Um, and the project I'm working on at the moment is developing, it's almost finished and will be launched in the next month, um, a veterinary nursing online skills um, massive resource full of videos, documents, pictures, webinars, um, uh, lectures, all sorts of stuff. Um, it's aimed at veterinary assistants or technicians or nurses who are working or training or teaching in countries that don't currently have a veterinary nursing qualification so it's aimed at those countries that I've been working in where I've seen massive gaps in the care of animals within um, veterinary clinics and veterinary teaching hospitals
0: brilliant okay it's
1: to enhance any learning that they're already um, receiving and it's also it can also be used by lecturers um, who are teaching veterinary nurses and so I know that in a lot of these countries they don't have anesthetic machines so uh, there's not a massive focus on using anesthetic machines Mm -hmm. I know that they don't have bear huggers or heat mats so it's it's looking at what those countries have understanding why the issues exist in those countries because there's lots and lots of reasons and then working around those problems with what I know they have available to them
0: and do you still do do you still travel are you still traveling
1: I've done a tiny bit, but I had a baby a few years ago, (laughs) a male baby.
0: (laughs) Are we allowed to know his name? His
1: name is Cameron. So yeah, he got a Scottish name Um, and he is three next month. So the the travelling has reduced, but I have still done a little bit and I still will um, travel to do um, lectures and conferences, things like that.
0: Yes, like the lovely lectures that you've done for us. Um, So the other thing then, so you you are working in practice as well.
1: Yes, um, I'm working in a practice in Chesterfield and Mansfield. It is a, we don't say first opinion I do we? we say primary care.
0: Primary care. It's a yes. primary
1: care practice. That's right. And- I have a massive interest in behaviour, so I'm not behaviourist, but big interest in behaviour. So lots of the behaviour cases, the vets and nurses will refer to me. I'll help those clients where I can. Um, If I'm out of my depth, which I'm aware when I am, especially if the dog is bitten, they will be referred to um, our um, behaviourist that we always refer to who's APBC accredited.
0: And we were talking about kind of what we wanted to discuss um we you mentioned kind of behavior of patients within the clinic and particularly with a focus on pain scoring so I don't I don't know if you want to just start by just talking a little bit about why this area interests you so much and, and how you've developed and um, that within your sort of clinical practice
1: yeah so I <clears throat> When I was first in practice, we didn't give pain relief to um, any surgical patients because um, there was that old-fashioned belief that one, animals didn't feel pain like we did, um, and two, you need them to be painful so that they stay still post-surgery. that's still yeah. I still hear that oh, today.
0: I do as well. It makes man. me really really oh, sad. <laughs> I
1: uh, um, yeah. So. I think that if we can keep our animals pain-free post-surgery, there's a suite of reasons why we should be doing it, but we can really impact on their welfare um, in the clinic and when they go home as well. Their wounds will heal faster, they'll be eating faster, they will um, be out on their walks and sooner they'll be sleeping better. Um, There's a link now with inappropriately treated acute pain at the time of surgery, and um, a link to uh, chronic pain in humans. And we can probably assume the same for our animal patients, even though they're not verbal, Uh, humans are self-reporting this, Um, it's probably the same for animals. And there's links with depression, anxiety, and sleep disturbances, and all those things that go with pain. And so I think treating pain appropriately is um, where we can make the biggest difference to animals in practice. And, there's brilliant tools out there to recognize pain there are so many drugs available to us in the uk to treat pain we have owners who are extremely dedicated and motivated to keep their animals happy and yet we're still not quite getting it right we're a lot better than we used to be yeah. so much better but um what i would love to see is that every time a nurse or a vet and um, TPRs a patient temperature pulse respiration they pain score at the same time because pain scoring use the short using the short form of the glasgow a composite pain scale one available for dogs and cats it takes less than a minute um and you can be doing you can half of it can be done just as you walk up to the cage mm-hmm. and so there really is no excuse to not be doing it
0: my experience of pain scoring is um first of all people don't feel confident doing it mm-hmm. and second of all people that, that the number is generated And no one's got a clue what to do with that number. What's the difference between four and... Do you know what I mean? So someone says... So so the nurse might be really good, for instance, and do the pain score and then they present the, the vet with a five or a whatever yeah and the vet's like oh yeah I mean nice <laughs> do you know what I mean
1: yeah I do because it's actually I've got the form in front of me now it doesn't actually say when to intervene yeah okay so you um you have the form in front of you you go through a series of one two three four six questions for the dog and mm-hmm. um so for example you just I'll do this quickly. If you look at the dog in its kennel, is it quiet? That scores a zero. If it's crying or whimpering, it's a one. If it's groaning, it's two. If it's screaming, it's three. Um, And then here's another example. Um, If the dog uh, has a wound or painful area So this is used post-operatively You um, apply gentle pressure Two inches around that op site So some people call this the poke the wound test Some people think it's controversial Because it's like you're having to inflict pain To see if you've got pain But I do think it's quite important So if you palpate around that wound If the dog does nothing, it's a zero If it looks around, it's a one If it flinches, two Growls or guards, three Snaps, four Cries, five Do you know what the cat one is actually much? simpler because um if you get response from the cat it's either does it respond or does it not respond anyway so the six questions that you go through you add up the score at the end now the total score is out of 24 if the dog scores a six or higher then you give pain relief if there is one question that you may not do, which is put a lead on the dog and take it out of the kennel, um, when the dog rises or walks, is it normal zero? Is it lame one? Is it slow or reluctant two? Is it stiff three? Refuses to move as four. If you don't do that section because the dog is not ambulatory, maybe it's had major spinal surgery, um, then the score total score is out of twenty, and if it scores five or higher then it needs pain relief so the dog one is slightly more complicated but what's really interesting about the dog one and I always put this into my lectures because because I was so bad at scoring and recognizing pain in the past what's included is if the dog is licking its wound um, then that scores that will score high depending on the intensity of the lick and in the past, and still to this date, we just put buster collars on these dogs. And that is the equivalent of putting a cork up the bum of a dog with diarrhea. Okay, you're going to stop the diarrhea. You're going to stop the dog from licking, licking its wound when you put a buster collar on, but you're not going to stop the pain. And I find it really sad that we still do this when this dog is communicating to us it's in pain. And then we stop mm. it from, from doing the only thing it can do to alleviate
0: pain. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because, of course... We don't want the dog to lick the wound because that mm. might end up with the wound breaking down or whatever else. But yeah. the the bit that people are missing is what that actually means. That's so interesting. Yeah. So that's the point. They're just, and you know, we I'm guilty of the if I had a pound for every time I had a call when I worked out of hours for someone had spade today licking their wound, what's the intervention? Coming by a buster collar. Yeah, yeah. But that's, but that's, the, that's the dog licking wound coming by a buster collar. Yeah. No discussion about, well, actually, do we need to think about adding in some other analgesic? You know, you're absolutely right. So yeah,
1: that, checking for clipper rash. Exactly. Is that what's annoying it? Yeah. Exactly.
0: So I think the, the take home message from what you've just said there, though, is actually once you do, there is a form. And the yes. form can be duplicated and put on the front of every single kennel. <laughs> so, it can. You, you know, and, and, and so it's not, it's just, you really, and then you've explained that to me now and I'm like, oh yeah, I mean, I get that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not the, it's not complex. You just have to follow the steps, right? It
1: takes less than a minute. And what's yeah. even more convenient than printing the form. So yes, have one in your, in your printout for each, um, and you know, patient that's having surgery that day. Um, better still laminate it have it on every kennel so you can just wipe it off at the end of the day mm. and then it's there but even better than that and i've asked this question to loads of nurses when you ask them well that's what are the three things you always have in your pocket in your scrubs and it's scissors pen your mobile phone so screenshot it put it in your favorites, in your photos. I've over five and a half thousand photos now. I've got to delete some. So I put it in my favorites. There's only 18 photos in there. Go to my favorites, find the photo. I can add up ones and twos, <laughs> I can manage that. And then, I, and then the score is there. You need to make sure that you, you know your patient before you do the surgery so that you understand that if that dog is now slow or reluctant to go out for its walk, it wasn't like that before. Def- what's happened? a scalpel has been (laughs) has been near the animal um i think it's painful and then yeah so five out of 20 or 5 or more out of 20 give pain relief 6 out or more out of 24 give pain relief and the same for the cat one 5 or more out of 20 it's very simple the cat one um, and there's even pictures on that one um give more pain relief the important thing as well scott is to remember that after 20 30 minutes of, of giving more analgesia you go back and you repain pain score that animal and check that it has actually worked that the analgesia was appropriate it was the right amount it was the right type mm-hmm. um, and not just it's not just a tick box exercise pain scored it oh it's high oh let's give it analgesia boom done No, go back and read pain score that's gold standard pain scoring
0: and that's i think it's important <clears throat> but th- that's so important with lots of things we do it's not always just about that one individual number it's mm. about trends you know it's, it's when yeah. people when we talk about doing a, a poker scan or doing i don't know checking a pcv or whatever half yeah. the or doing a blood lactate people come to me having an nervous breakdown about this one blood lactate value so yeah, fair enough. But actually, it, it's much more important what that blood like lactate value is doing in half an hour after yeah. this fluid bolus, and it's the yeah. same thing here because yes, okay, so it's a seven now, but it's yeah. actually more important that's a three in a half an hour, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, and the other thing um that's important to remember that even if you score say them a four, so that wouldn't involve an analgesic intervention, but you know that animal, and you with your clinical experience, you feel that that animal is painful. Give give more pain relief because you've really nothing to lose, mm-hmm. um, and it's that's another great way of testing. To see if an animal was painful or not. Give pain relief. Check it in half an hour. Does it look mm-hmm. better? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was right. Mm-hmm. And what's lovely about pain scoring is it is extremely objective. Using the Glasgow one, which is validated, it's objective, and I liken it to when someone asks you to take a temperature. You take a temperature with your thermometer. You give the vet that reading. He can't say. I don't believe you <laughs> and so with, with yeah. or she the pain score because some people for whatever their reasons mm-hmm. are often reluctant to give more pain relief and mm-hmm. so but so if you go with that number and say i scored a seven it really it can't be argued with no um, and i
0: and that that that's so you're so wise i mean but that is so <laughs> true but that's really true like I, I i do think that we maybe there's a bit of a perception you know, with vets particularly, because they can be crap, you know, about, you know, well, they can, can't they? And, and, you know, maybe that pain score is a wee bit of an 80 fairy thing. But as yeah. you're saying, it's not. Like, it's a number no. on a page. Yes. It's validated. No, and it's
1: not, it's not my opinion. It's, sci- it's science. Exactly.
0: It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is not, this, this is science, yeah. Um. So I think, you know, you're absolutely right. What you said about knowing the animal before this is a really interesting discussion the more we have chats with nurses about different things Mm. because these are the things that vets are not good at okay (laughs) i mean maybe maybe i i just think vets miss some of the subtleties of that sort of thing you know you ask the vet well what was it what was the dog like before and the vet just remembers admitting the dog putting in a kennel and 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 potentially isn't so aware of some of these subtle behaviors that are so helpful in then making that assessment afterwards, and I think that's what—that's why good nursing care that involves the the kind of level of 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 care and attention that you're talking about is so important.
1: Yeah, and I think we need to remember we have different skill sets, um, completely yes, different skill yeah. sets. So. Um really simply, I think vets like to fix animals and nurses like to care for animals um and so yeah, maybe we do perhaps we do recognize more subtle signs and we're more tuned into that, but that's because yeah. that's our job to focus no, on the exactly, patient care right. and you know we're not looking at blood results particularly or x-rays or scans and trying to interpret them so the vet can't do everything, which is why they um, have to rely on the nurses to notice these more subtle signs um, and so mm-hmm. when we see behavioral changes we might spot it um quicker because we spent time getting to know that patient
0: as far as kind of giving advice to people now so there'll be nurses out there particularly in vets as well who'll be thinking well we we don't do this well enough in our practice so i, I think you know what what sort of top tips do you have for making things better from a pain and welfare point of view <sighs>
1: what i would be recommending and and sort of the method that i have used is um get good at it yourself and so become very familiar with the forms the one for the cat and the one for the dog get good at it yourself and then either start um with a practice meeting where saying I would like to introduce using these um, obviously you need your head nurse and your practice manager on board and just say I really think we should be pain scoring all of these animals can we trial this and once um, it's appreciated that it doesn't take any extra time um, and that patient welfare does improve then hopefully everybody would be on board and even when you think an animal isn't painful you don't know until you score it so um, TPR so it should be TPRPS temporary temperature pulse, respiration, pain score. Um, But yeah, start with a practice meeting. If you're a lone wolf and you're doing it, then that's maybe what's gonna have to be the way in your practice. But hopefully everyone's working in practice where they feel they can have these discussions um, and that nursing care can improve because uh, nurse meetings, so so many good ideas can come out of a nurse meeting um, and uh, it can be discussed so it doesn't look like it's been forced upon people. Um, And that would be, it. it would just be discuss it with your team.
0: So, could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing uh, with the Jean Marchique Centre at the moment, maybe some of the research you're working on?
1: This it might be interesting if people are going to be working overseas um, or if they um, aren't able to physically touch an animal post surgery because it's, um, it's so worried about being touched. And this is when you're working overseas with dogs that aren't used to being handled. What some Animal charities noticed that is that they would use the pain score on the animals pre-surgery and find that they were actually scoring more painful pre-surgery than post-surgery simply because they weren't used to being touched. So they were giving really dramatic responses to having a lead put on them or having a, um, their abdomen palpated. And so because street dogs, the the facial morphology of, of street dogs is pretty similar. We don't have that you know Borzoi to Pug face going on or the up ears of a an Nikita and the down ears of a Bloodhound their faces are generally the same we can use a lot of facial expressions to recognize pain um, in dogs as well mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so um there are the things that you can just be looking at as well. This um, is, is, there's some more research going into this, but if you go onto our Jean-Marcic page, um, you'll be able to start seeing this research. And so we're looking at things like orbital tightening. So where the muscles around the eyes contract, uh, which, and squeeze the eyes closed. Um, ear tension, so if the ears are tilted backwards or flattened to make it appear as though the distance between the base of the ears is widened. And then you can look for a tense mouth as well, um uh, Mm -hmm. and things like that and then there's the obvious tucked up abdomen and curved back and then tense and rigid limbs so if you've got an animal that's lying with its legs straight out from it and really because it doesn't put any pressure on its abdomen that's something we can be looking at as well as well as the attention to wound and vocalizing and a reluctance to move but there's also that when they hang their head down so head Mm -hmm. lowering um can also be a sign that the animal is extremely uncomfortable
0: and i suppose this it just it's about building more and more you know information and tools and in our armory and and it, it just yeah it's just giving us more and more information and that's only going to benefit the animals in our care exactly yeah Yep. Yeah. if you were to have your time again and you were to take yourself back to 1996 i know it's a stretch because it was so long ago <laughs> um <laughs> would you would you do it again would you be a vet nurse again
1: in a heartbeat yeah I've really thought about this and there there is no other career that I would want to do um and I would do it exactly the same way I've done it because I've had wonderful experiences mm. and, and I've had amazing opportunities um and so yeah I've, I've had a lovely life wow. if it all ended now okay. I I would be I would be okay <laughs> this is not an end of
0: life interview I mean you are going to <laughs> you will you will continue i
1: still feel okay i still feel like i've done loads as a veterinary nurse with with my qualification
0: okay and if you were to give one piece of advice to veterinary nurses that were listening maybe ones that are starting their career what would you say to them
1: get good with behavior i would be do as much um as much learning as you possibly can about dog and cat behavior those and rabbits as well those are going to be the main animals um, that you obviously if you're in small animal those will be your main animals that you're dealing with and understanding why dogs and cats do the thing and rabbits do the things they do um, will help you massively not just in the clinic but when you're advising owners as well so just for an example i had a lady she was referred to me by one of the vets the other day she had a dog that um had started growling every time they tried to move it out of the kitchen when they were feeding their toddler in the high chair and the dog was now um snapping at them when they tried to move it out of the kitchen Um, and there was talk of, of sending the dog to boot camp and i said that the dog doesn't need more training it needs just a bit of unpicking to find out why it's behaving the way it does Um, in that situation and and so yeah behavior because we don't get taught enough at college um, or university vets included Mm -hmm. um then make it your, your um mission to learn as much about behavior as possible and um, the Jamal Chic International Centre for Animal Welfare we've got two MOOCs on behavior so MOOC uh, stands for Massive Open Access Online Course and if you go to our website um, then you can find this would be your starting point and um, two MOOCs on there one on animal behavior and welfare and one on dog and cat behavior and that's a great starting point to start your journey on learning all about behavior because it is one of the most undertaught things and as I said earlier we 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 can't break animals down to their biological values. We have got to understand what's going on inside their head and why they're doing what they're doing, behaving why they are um, so that we can help them much better.
0: So as always, Karen and I would like to thank you so much for listening and continuing to be so supportive of VTX. We want you to head over to our website to learn more about VTX. So that's www.vtx-cpd.com. And we are always looking for a little like, follow and share on our social media platforms. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.